When we turn our Bibles to the New Testament, we are welcomed or introduced to the Jesus that was prophesied in the Old Testament. The Old Testament not only tells us that Jesus is coming, but it tells us what type of Messiah, what type of servant we can expect to come. It tells us he's going to suffer, Isaiah 53. tells us about the kind of teaching he would do out of his mouth would come parables, Psalm 78 and verse 2 tells us about the miracles that he would perform in places like Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. But then when you get to the New Testament and you get to the Gospel of Matthew, we find that the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament is the Messiah that is born to Mary and to her husband Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. You start reading through the Gospel of Matthew and you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But at the conclusion of that sermon, what we find in Matthew chapter 8 is that Jesus is not only the Messiah who teaches, but he's also the Messiah who touches, who helps, and who heals. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 34, we find Jesus cleansing individuals of leprosy, healing individuals that are paralyzed from a distance, calming storms, casting out demons, and a host of other things as he exercises his power. It's important for us as we read these passages to not only see what Jesus did and to read the gospel accounts and see it from the vantage point of Jesus as the savior. But also as we have opportunity to get into the minds and lives of those who he interacted with and to see how it affected them and maybe even ask ourselves some questions. What would we do if we were them? What would we have done if we were in that circumstance? And so that's what we want to do this afternoon. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Matthew 8, and we'll look briefly at verses 5 through 13. Now, David mentioned this a moment ago, and I haven't had to fight this battle in a long time because there haven't been many fellowship meals. But today, it's the battle between me and the fellowship meal, and so we'll see who wins. I told some to talk fast like those guys at the end of those advertising commercials or an auctioneer. So I'm going to do my best to briefly, and then we'll extend the invitation. What happened? When this centurion encountered Jesus, here's number one. When the centurion encountered Jesus, he brought someone else. And he is severely tormented. What we find when the centurion encountered Jesus is a man who brought someone else. Now, you read throughout the gospel accounts, and as Jesus' popularity begins to spread, Matthew 4, 23 through 25 says that people came from as far as Syria, bringing their sick and their lame and their paralyzed, and Jesus spoke a word or touched them, and they were healed. We read in the gospels of people doing what you would do if it were you, bringing their children, like Jairus' daughter, or the Canaanite woman who ran behind him and said, if I could just get near him. Sometimes people wanted Jesus to settle disputes between them and their family members about property like the man in Luke 12. But so far as I see in the New Testament, the centurion is the only man in the entire Bible who ever came on behalf of his servant. Appreciate that centurions, they're the backbone of the Roman army. He's a Gentile man by his cultural standing. He's a man that's in charge of discipline and rank, probably a very educated man. Luke's account says that he was loved by all of the Jews in that area. Luke 7, 5 and 6, because he had built a synagogue in dedication to the Jews. And imagine his thinking. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity that the son of God just so happens to be in my town and in my area. What would you go for? What would you approach him in behalf of? And this man, he brought a servant. Now, there's nothing wrong with coming to Jesus for ourselves. The Bible teaches that we should do that. That's important. But once we encounter Jesus and we realize what he's able to do and how he's healed and helped and fixed us, it's the right thing to do to go and do the same and bring others. And I think this is a good time to say on behalf of Lehman Avenue, what a great job of that. So many of you did today. This auditorium was filled this morning with guests and visitors and loved ones 
because as the challenge and the encouragement was issued from the leadership here to bring individuals for Plum Full Sunday, that challenge was met. But it doesn't stop here. It must continue throughout the duration of our Christian walk. Jesus told a man in Mark five in verse 19, go home and tell all of your loved ones what God has done for you and what great grace he has had on you. And that is evangelism in a nutshell. I read an article this week on a website called Mental Floss, and they talked about how helping others is good for you. It can prolong your life, decrease your blood pressure and a host of other things. But the New Testament says bringing other people to Jesus is likewise good for us. In summary, in this first point, what we see from the centurion is just evangelism in its basic form. What is evangelism involved? Seeing other people that we love that are hurting. Number two, believing that Jesus can and will help those individuals. And then in the third place, doing everything within our power to arrange the meeting. The centurion says, my servant is lying at home sick and terribly tormented. And he brings somebody else to Jesus. We that have known Jesus and come to know him, we must be doing the same. Now, here's number two. When a centurion encountered Jesus, he found a willing savior. Look at verse seven. The centurion says, my servant is lying at home, grievously tormented and paralyzed. And Jesus doesn't ask him any questions. He doesn't say anything like you should have come sooner. Why'd you wait till now? He's just emphatic. I will come and heal him. In the Greek text, it's even more emphatic. Jesus says, I will self come and I'll heal him. We'll talk in a moment about what the centurion responds. But appreciate that when the centurion encountered Jesus, he encountered a savior who was willing to do this. You know, a lot of people in the world don't know this about Jesus. But this is the gospel's portrayal of the son of God. Jesus not only will help and can and has the power and the ability, but he's willing. Look at Matthew chapter eight and go up to verse three. He encounters the leper there and the leper says in Matthew eight and verse two, if you will, you can make me clean. And notice what Jesus says. Same thing. Underline that phrase. I will. Jesus is the willing savior. And that's who the centurion encountered. A Messiah who not only could, who possessed the power to fix people's lives, but one who said, you know what? I love you enough that I'm willing to be extended and to do this. People in the world need to know that Jesus is willing to do this. Matthew 8 portrays him this way. Verse 17 says that he took on our infirmities, quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. Matthew chapter 8, especially this with the centurion, doesn't just show us a savior who's willing to help us in the big things, but it shows us he's willing to help in all things. The chapter begins by Jesus cleansing an individual of leprosy and then the paralytic and then Peter's mother-in-law of a fever in verses 14 through 16. And then he calms the stormy sea. He cast out demons, all of those things. And some of those we could appreciate why you might need divine reinforcement, casting out demons, leprosy. But maybe with Peter's mother-in-law, we read that and we say, well, she could have just taken some Tylenol, you know, or maybe the stormy seas or other things that they could have taken up for themselves. But what Matthew chapter eight says to you and me is this. Jesus is willing to help us conquer our giants and our gnats, even things you say, well, that's a small thing. I don't want to bother him or burden him. We serve a savior who's not only able, but he's willing. Now, if you go to the gym at all, and if you go with strong people, you might find yourself in there pumping iron and you might put what they think are just some cinnamon rolls on the side, not really weights, you know, but you might say, hey, I need a spotter with this. And they may say, oh, that's lightweight. You got it. You don't need any help. You can handle that. You're strong enough. You can do that. You don't need any help. Jesus sees people in need. And Jesus says, let me help you with that. Jesus never sees you and me in our struggle and says, oh, you got it. You can handle it. You don't need my help. Jesus is always saying to us, why would you try to carry that alone? Why would you try to bear that? Here I am. I'm willing. I will help. I'm here to support you. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke on you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. By his very nature, this is who he is. One who wants to extend, one who wants to reach out. Maybe we find ourselves on the outside and we say, Jesus has done a lot of great things for a lot of people, but he couldn't do it for me. Or maybe we say, you know, he helped me with this last week and I should know better. And here I am in this same situation again. Surely he's fed up. What if this centurion would have thought that way? What if this centurion would have said, you know, he's got a whole world to save. And there are people that have dead children and leprosy. And surely he doesn't have time for my servant. And to his surprise, when he encounters Jesus, there's no rebuttal. There's no frustration. Jesus pretty much just says, where do we need to go to take care of business? I am willing. I'll come. It's one of the most astonishing things about Jesus throughout his whole life, how willing he was. You just think about the cross. No fussing, no fighting, never a word in his own defense. He was so silent in that moment of agony and false accusation that Pilate marveled at his silence in Mark 15 and verse 5. He never said one word in his own defense. Why did he do that? It's because he was willing to. No man takes my life from me. No, I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down and power to take it up again. John 10 and verse 18. When the centurion encountered Jesus... He encountered a savior who says, I really want to help you. Maybe you find yourself in weakness, struggling with the same things over and over again. What Peter said in first Peter five and verse seven, he meant every word of it. Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. First Peter five and verse seven. He wants to do it. He finds the weakest among us. He has an eye for it. And he says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Do you need help? Because I, I can help. But not only can I, I'm willing. I like to do that kind of thing. I want to help you. The centurion found a savior who wasn't too busy for him, who wasn't too preoccupied, who didn't have better things to do. He came to seek and save the lost, and he still does the same thing today. Here's number three. When the centurion encountered Jesus, he found a savior and he acknowledged his authority. Would you look at verse eight and verse nine? Jesus says, I will come and heal him. The centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but just speak the word only and my servant will be healed. I'm a man like you with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go and he goes to another come and he comes to my servant. Do this and he does it. Now, there are reasons why maybe the centurion didn't want Jesus under his roof. Acts 10 and verse 28. Peter talks about Jews and Gentiles not having dealings with each other. He may even recognize Jesus's holiness and his sinfulness. But he says, I don't I don't need you to come. And then he recognizes something about Jesus's authority. He's a centurion. He's a soldier over a 100 soldiers. But he's not the highest ranking soldier in the Roman army. No, there are other individuals over him. And this is how he reasons. If I'm a centurion and there are soldiers under me and they do what I tell them to do, and I'm not even the top dog in the Roman army, I have limitations. And yet individuals obey my words. Jesus, you know, no bounds. You have no limitations. The word and my servant will be healed. Because you possess that kind of authority. This idea of authority runs throughout the Gospel of Matthew. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, they're astonished at his authority. The way he talked, nobody ever preached like him. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. When he healed the paralytic, he had authority to do it. Matthew 9, 2 through 6, they said, where did he get this authority? It was inherent in who he was. When the disciples went out on what's called the limited commission, he gave them power and ability to heal. But Matthew 10 and verse 1 says he gave them authority. When he flipped the tables over, they were frustrated. Who comes into God's house and behaves like that? Where did you get this authority? 
And at the end of his life, Matthew 28 and verse 18, when he rose from the dead, he said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. He always had all authority. And when the centurion encountered Jesus, he knew something about hierarchy and structure and power. But he says, I've never seen anything like this. Proximity is no issue for you. Just say the very words and it would happen. He realized that Jesus had authority. Now, when you think about who runs the world, maybe you think about armies and moguls and politicians. But the reality is Jesus has all authority. And we sometimes quote that. And what we mean is Jesus has all authority in religious matters. But the Bible doesn't say that Jesus has all authority in everything that really matters. He's in charge of everything. And so we shouldn't say, even though I know what we mean, we say, well, the world's spiraling out of control. That's an impossibility. Because it's under his control. He upholds it by the word of his power. Hebrews one and verse three. And so that means everything that's happening in the world to some degree is happening just the way he wills it, or at least the way that he allows it to be in the present, because he is in total control. Daniel said this is what was going to happen when the Messiah came. He would be given dominion and authority and power and all kingdoms and nations would bow under his. But his reign would never know an end. You know why? Because of what the centurion acknowledged. He's in total control. This brings questions for us, though. If Jesus has all authority in heaven and in earth, it means does he have it in my life? He's the author of eternal salvation to all them who obey him. Am I surrendering myself over to Jesus and allow him to exercise authority? Am I doing things in the way that he says and in the way that he would have me to do? Because I ultimately know that he knows best. We have a word for this in our culture, and sometimes people have a problem with statements like this. We call it abuse of power. People have known individuals that have run companies and countries and teams and families, and they've had power and they've abused it. And so when you come up to people and you say, Jesus has all authority, sometimes they sort of pull back and they say, well, I've heard that talk before. And people that are in charge, people that are running things, you can't really trust them. Maybe they'll abuse it. How do I know that Jesus isn't like everybody else that I've known that's had power, but have used it for their own selfish purposes and in the end hurt other individuals? How can we know we can trust him with all authority? And Jesus stares that question question down sincerely and he takes the inquirer by the hand and leads him or her under the cross and he says now listen I know you've got concerns about this I know you're worried about me abusing my authority but I want you to take a look I surrendered authority I gave up everything in order to save you you don't have to worry about me harming you I can never sin against you I'm the perfect person to have all authority because I always do what's right even when you can't realize it even when you don't recognize it I have your best interest at heart and now you have to do what I've done And you have to release and you have to surrender and you're just going to have to trust me because you can't please him with lip service. You have to please him with the life of service. Don't call him Lord and not do what he says. He has all authority. But those are just words on the page unless he has it in our own lives. Number four, when the centurion encountered Jesus, he amazed the Savior. There are only two times in the entire Bible where the Bible says Jesus was surprised or shocked or amazed. Here's one of them. The other one is in Mark six and verse six. And maybe hold your hand in Matthew eight ten and flip over to Mark six and verse six and notice the parallels. The only two times this word for shocked or amazed is used of Jesus, who knows everything is found in these two accounts. He's shocked. He marvels at the faith of the centurion. And then in Mark six and verse six in his own hometown of Nazareth, the Bible says he marveled because of their unbelief. And he instead went around the villages teaching. How do you shock God? There are only two ways. One way to shock or impress God is to have amazing faith. That's what the centurion had. When he said, just speak the word and my servant will be healed in Matthew eight and verse 10, the Bible says Jesus marveled at his faith and said to those that followed, I haven't found this great faith. No, not even in Israel. If you want to surprise Jesus, 
Let him look down at you. I hope we make him nudge the angel sometimes and say, hey, can you look at those folks? Look at how much he believes. Look at how faithful and committed she is. That's one way to impress God. But the second way is for him to look at us and say, after all we've been through, after all we've done together, after all I've done for and with you, you still don't get it. You still don't believe. The only two times the Bible says he's impressed is by great faith and by a lack of faith. We spend a lot of money, congregations throughout the world, sending missionaries to foreign places. And for good for good reason, we think, well, they need the gospel. They don't have the resources we have. And it's impressive. I've been on a few short term mission trips. I'm, Neil has been on some. of, the, And you go to those places and people seem to just soak the gospel up right away. I mean, as soon as they hear it. But if you come back here, sometimes people need 20 apologetics courses before they'll even give the Bible a hearing. They're not impressed with Jesus's credentials. They're not really sure that they can trust the Bible. They're not really sure that what Jesus says he actually means. And Jesus is amazed by that. But he's also amazed by childlike trust and faith. And every one of us surprises him in one way or another. He's either surprised with how deep and how great our faith is and how much we believe. Or after receiving so much from him, hearing so many lessons, hearing so much Bible, how little we believe. He saw the centurion's faith and he says, I haven't seen anything like this, not even in Israel. Israel should have been ahead, you know. They had the Old Testament scriptures and prophecy. And for all of those things, Jesus had the hardest time with the Jews. Every time you read of a Gentile in the Gospels, for the most part, they're saying he's the son of God. I want more of what he has. Hey, I want to follow him. He amazed the Savior. And I hope when Jesus looks at me, he says, I can't believe how much faith he has. I can't believe how much faith she has. I hope he says that about us. And not what he says in Mark 6 and verse 6. Here's number five. When a centurion encountered Jesus, he found out that the invitation for salvation was universal. In verse 11 and verse 12, Jesus says, many will come from the east and the west and sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But the sons of this kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The centurion came to have his servant healed, but he got much more than that. What Jesus gives him and the Jews present on that occasion is a window into the whole scheme of redemption in the gospel system where God says, I'm going to save everybody from everywhere. This Gentile is a picture into what God is going to eventually do for everybody in the world. And when he encountered Jesus, Jesus says things that shocks people. When you read Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, those three names together, what most times is happening in the mind of a Jewish person, they're thinking, oh, yeah, those are our people and our guys. That's our family lineage. And then Jesus flips this. Everybody's going to be there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but not just them. Gentiles and servants and women and children. There are going to be people there that you didn't expect. Look at verse 12. The children of the kingdom, that's the Jews who should have believed. They'll be on the outside. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is saying in this text, as the centurion encounters him, salvation is for whosoever wills. Acts 2.21, first gospel sermon, Peter says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. About halfway through the New Testament in Romans 10.13, Paul says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, he will be saved. And John ends the New Testament and the book of Revelation with that same invitation. Revelation 22.17 says, whosoever will, let him come and take and drink from the water of life freely. One theologian said, when you and I get to heaven, there will be three great surprises. The first surprise will be, who is there? Can you imagine Stephen's surprise when he saw Saul of Tarsus in paradise with him? What are you doing here? You'll be surprised at who's there. The second surprise is we'll be surprised at who's not there. 
Can you imagine repenting and believing in the kingdom based on the preaching of Judas? He was with the apostles and he did miracles in your hometown. You became a Christian, a disciple of Jesus. You get to heaven and Judas is not there. We'll be surprised. People that we thought would make it, people that look faithful to us in the end may not make it at all. We'll be surprised that who's there, who's not there. And then he said the third and the most awesome surprise will be that I'm there. And that's not because we can never be sure of our salvation. It's not because God changes his mind about us on a daily basis, but it's because we'll be finally impressed with everything we receive by faith. It'll be in our sight and the far reaching grace of God. I made it. I'm here. Finally, he said, well done to me. And Jesus says there'll be people from all over. Here's the last one this afternoon. When a centurion encountered Jesus, his faith was rewarded. He said, according to your faith, be it done to you. And his servant was healed in that very same hour. He came to Jesus and he got exactly what he expected to get. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those who come to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11 and verse six. The centurion came to Jesus and he found out that Jesus always rewards faith. Now, in the Bible, when you see the word faith, I want you to always think about belief. Yes. But in the Bible, faith means trust. When you trust God with the mind toward obedience, that's what the Bible means when it talks about faith. And Jesus rewarded this man's faith. And as a result of that, his servant was healed. And Jesus does this in front of everybody, not just for the centurion, but for the Jews that are around. And then Matthew recorded it for you and me, because this is how it works. When Thomas put his finger in the side of Jesus and said, my Lord and my God, Jesus said, Thomas, blessed are you because you've seen and believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Truly, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But these are written that you might believe so that you might be rewarded, just like the centurion. That's what God wants for everybody in the world. We studied this afternoon about the encounter between Jesus and the centurion. And the reality is it's the same for every one of us. Nobody who encounters Jesus ever leaves the same. John Stott said when people encounter Jesus, nobody ever in the gospel shrugs their shoulders and leaves indifferent. They either hate him and want to kill him. They're either terribly afraid of Jesus and run in the other direction or they're totally smitten by his love. And as a result, they just want to give their whole lives to him. But nobody ever encounters Jesus and leaves the same. And the same thing's true today. We, like the centurion, encounter him through the scriptures and we either say, I want nothing to do with him. Kill his influence and his words in my life. Silence that. Bring the volume down as low as you can. We're shocked and terrified by what he demands, not realizing the benefits and the blessings it yields. And we run in the other direction or we are smitten by his love and his willingness to save. And we say, you can have my entire life. The centurion encountered Jesus and he came with somebody else in mind. Jesus was willing to save, willing to heal, and he did. It's a picture. Somebody said the parables, the, the healings of Jesus are really parables into Jesus' teaching. What Jesus does in this miracle is what he wants to do for everybody in the world on a much grander scale. Not merely to heal us physically, but to heal us spiritually. And if we're faithful and if we have faith, he is willing and he will. If you need to respond to the invitation today and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ or to be restored or have prayers to encourage you, We'd be happy to help you. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.